Today we're going to be in Psalm 73. If you want to find your place there, Psalm 73. Um, I've taken the uh, occasion of a new year to preach a topical message for us. And every time the calendar year flips, it's a good time to evaluate the past year of where you've been and to maybe renew commitments before the Lord of, of how you would like to honor and glorify Him in the year to come. And for me, there's several things that popped into my brain. There's several things I could have preached on. Um, and I have come to the conclusion of asking the question, as I have many times over the last couple years, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? And that's a question that the psalmist asks in this psalm, Psalm 73. And we see the injustice around the world. We know that God hates oppression. We know that, that God hates injustices. And so as those who are in his image, who have been born again, we too hate those things when we hear about those types of things going on. A persecution and suffering is real in the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised, right, when we encounter those things. Um, it's normal for Christians to have painful experiences in different seasons from time to time. And even, you know, sometimes this can be physical, uh, like in our bodies, and, but other times it can be in our mind, like mental illness type things, you know, and, and that's, that's pervasive in our day. We, we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked, and they seem to curse God, and somehow they still prosper. And, and, and even for us, we, we know better deep down inside God is sovereign. We know their end is going to come, right? But sometimes we can be so discouraged in the midst of it when we see it. And I'll just name several things for me that, 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 that I've struggled with over the last couple years. I'm thinking in particular, coming up on the two-year anniversary of the... Uh, two weeks to slow the spread type of thing. And, um, you know, you, you think of the, the coronavirus pandemic has provided an opportunity for political leaders to show their true colors and just how far they're willing to go to ignore God and, and to impose things that are not right, imposing even unjust mandates. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about the first couple of months, okay? Nobody knew what this was. I think we did the right thing. We didn't meet as a church for seven or eight weeks. I think that was all fine. But six, seven, eight months into this thing, we kind of knew when our governor said, you can't sing and you got to meet outside. But the strip clubs are open and the bars are, you know, or the um, liquor stores are open and all of this kind of stuff. You begin to kind of see that something's twisted here. Something's not right. They're, shutting, they're seeking to shut down the very house of God while promoting or allowing wickedness to thrive all around us. You see this even around the world uh, today where they go unchallenged. And, you know, for me as a former business owner, I know that the 25,000, I think it is, Mark might know better, but 25,000 family businesses were destroyed just in America alone. It's probably higher than that. And that's terrible. These are generational businesses. This is the inheritance that will be passed on to the next generation. And it's just shuttered and shut down forever. That's not right. That's not right. 
the authoritarian tyrants have come out destroying, even seeking to continue to destroy the lives of children by having them masked up when they are the safest part of our community, the safest part of our society. You see examples of Australia and New Zealand where the health leaders are saying, we're never going back to normal. They're freezing bank accounts. You're not allowed to leave the country. This is authoritarian tyranny that should make your blood boil. I've watched some videos in the last day or two of in the Netherlands, they're trying to keep people safe. You know how they're doing that? By beating them with clubs and having them mauled by dogs because they don't have a vaccine passport. This is for your safety, right? That's insanity. In New York, on January 5th, the legislature is going to consider several new laws, and I want to just share these with you. This is just as an example, okay? New York, California typically lead the way, right? And other states may follow, but just hear this out. They're going to consider this. There's, there's some assembly bills. The first is COVID shots for all ages to attend any school. That would include preschool, kindergarten, college, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Forced vaccination adult records in a state database. So much for your medical history to be private. It's in a database now that can be hacked and anybody can get it. Uh, it eliminates any religious exemptions. Also eliminates the rights of parents that once a child reaches 14, that 14-year-old can choose a sex change operation, an abortion, and any number of other things that the parents' rights are now completely taken away. And probably most grievous is Assembly Bill 416, um, which allows the governor, this is their language, allows the governor to imprison anyone without trial she considers to be a threat to public health. You see what that's doing? That's making that governor the sovereign that if I decide that you're a threat, you're being locked up. There's no trial. There's no uh, due diligence whatsoever. It's all about control. These laws and these types of things that they're imposing are about pressing a different agenda. An authoritarian thirst for more and more power and control. We can name names. I'll let you fill in the blanks. How about this? What about the cancel culture? What about our kids being taught something that's not true because it's not convenient? What about critical race theory? What about this division amongst the kids? All of this kind of stuff should make your blood boil if you understand what it's doing. How about this? We've got open borders. So now the drug cartels are coming in. All-time profits, all-time fentanyl coming into our country. And you say, oh, well, that doesn't touch me. But I think if we did a survey of our entire church, do you know anybody that's died from fentanyl? If not, a family member or a friend of a family member, 100,000 deaths this year alone. But we're more concerned about you carrying a vaccine card than stopping that stuff from coming into the country. Um, a friend of mine, Pastor Tony, lost his son just back in September to a fentanyl overdose. He walked into his bedroom and found him, 18 years old, dead. He was able to go shut his eyes. And um, so this stuff hits close to home. How about human trafficking? God, 
God cares about these kinds of things. And when minors are trafficked for wicked ends in the pornographic industry and all of that, we can see the present prosperity. We can see and we can begin to become grieved. And why do they not have any sorrow and pain? We know that's going to come sometime. But why does God allow that? And, and the psalmist here, he, he, he's struggling as he sees all of this stuff all around him in his own day. And he's struggling to see. So this is a psalm of um, Asaph, and he wrote from Psalm 73 to 83. This begins the third book of Psalms, as you know, that's divided into five books. He also wrote Psalm 50. In 2 Chronicles 29.30, it says, Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord. And the words of David and of Asaph the seer, and they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down, and they worshiped. So he was a worship leader, essentially. He was of the tribe of Levi, whom David put in charge of the worship music to be performed in the tent of meeting before the temple was even built. And one thing I'm encouraged about the author of this psalm is his brutal honesty. His brutal honesty. And we'll see that with him questioning things, and then also his repentance. Uh, and we'll see that uh, later in the psalm. He sees the ungodly flourish, but on top of that, they blaspheme the very God of Israel. And he begins to think, uh, are you really on the throne, O God? Why are you not acting against such wickedness? It's been commonly identified that Psalm 73 is like Psalm 37. Just switch those numbers around. Psalm 37, verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards the wrongdoers. And that's really what the psalmist was tempted of here in this psalm. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the godly have such a difficult time? Why, why is it, as it were, that it seems like the godly suffer so much in this life and have, have the, the added part of trials? And as I said earlier, we can't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is among us. When these trials come upon us, we shouldn't be surprised. We must be those that are resolved to give God praise no matter how much the heat is turned up, no matter how hot it gets, no matter how intense the pain becomes, no matter how much wicked we see, how much prosperity that the wicked actually have, and to give Him praise. The band Casting Crowns says a song, I'll praise you in the storm. It says, I'll praise you in the storm, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. Every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You've never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I'll praise you in the storm. We need to have that commitment, right? For 2022, that we will praise him no matter what, right? Because we are the children of God. We're children of the king. We need to have that commitment to him. Now, the psalm can be broken up into different ways. I'm not going to give you all the different examples. If you read it carefully, you could probably come up with that. But I want you to notice, in the at least in the NAS, there's there's a word in verse 1 and in verse 13, and where's the other one? Verse 20 in the 20s somewhere, or sorry, 18, 
And so the Shirley's, surely God is good to Israel. Surely in vain I've kept my heart poor. Surely you set them in slippery places. So that's going to be loosely kind of our structure. So first of all, verses 1 to 12, I'm not going to read the entirety of it. I'm going to read it as we go through it, okay? So let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is so practical and how we can relate to it. Give us understanding, even as the psalmist uh, had a renewed perspective. And Lord, maybe some of us need to have a, a corrected and renewed perspective for the year 2022 to help us to see what truths you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, the disoriented perception. Verse 1 is there just, I think, so that there's no confusion. He begins by stating his conclusion of the matter. He's going to go into what he was struggling about and what he saw. But look at what he says. Surely God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. So he sort of begins, like that could be the, the last verse of the psalm, and where like his conclusion, surely God is good to Israel. Uh, he, he states what he's learned from following God and studying the scriptures. But he says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So deep down he knows God is good to Israel and good to his children, but I almost slipped. I knew that, but I almost slipped because of these things. Looking back, Asaph knows God is good all the time to his covenant people. So as, as it were, he plants his feet solidly upon the rock before he recounts the conflict that's going on in his heart. He becomes envious of the wicked. It's almost as though everything they have is magnified. They've got it all. Look at what they have. And what, what you have is, is minimized, right? In his mind, the way he's thinking. He's ruthlessly honest about his sinful failings. And we'll see that more in the middle of the psalm. Charles Spurgeon says this on this. Here begins the narrative of the great soul battle, a spiritual marathon, a hard and well-fought field in which the half-defeated become, in the end, wholly victorious. But as for me, he contrasts himself with his God who is ever good. He owns his personal want of good and then also compares himself with the clean in heart. And he goes on to confess his own defilement. The Lord is good to his saints, but as for me, am I one of them? Can I expect to share his grace? Yes, I do share it, but I have acted an unworthy part, very unlike one who is truly pure in heart. My feet were almost gone. So the psalmist Spurgeon's there saying that he's acknowledging that he became weak. Isaiah 11 says he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So we need to know the truth and not view by externals, is what that's saying. Well, what did he see here? Let's, let's, let's go through verses 4 to 12 here. He gives a vivid description. He says, For there are no pains in their death, and their body 
is fat. And he's not talking about the obesity of America. What he's talking about is that prosperity, which in those days, if you were overweight, it was a sign of prosperity because you obviously ate well. But he gives this description, but looks can be so deceiving, right? Again, he's perceiving what the wicked have through a magnifying glass, and it's just looking so big and glorious and beautiful. But all along, he forgets that he alone is royalty. He's child of the king. He's got everything, especially that spiritual inheritance. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, we cannot judge men's state on the other side of death, either by the manner of their death or the frame of their spirits in dying. Men may die like lambs, and yet have their place with the goats. In other words, you can't judge by the peace that someone has as they're on their deathbed, and I'm not talking about hospice being all morphined up, but I'm talking about someone that has a false assurance. Oh, I've lived a good life, and you know, all of this, surely I'll be with God. You can't judge by that, or even the manner of which they've died. And so his cry is that they have no pains in their death. His, his cry is that they, they've lived a godless life of wickedness, and then they die peacefully. That, that's what he's seeing. And then their, their body is fat, his cry is. Spurgeon says, in cases of obesity, the eyes usually appear to be enclosed with fat. But sometimes they protrude. In either case, the countenance is changed and loses its human form and is assimilated to that of fatted swine. That's Spurgeon's way of words with that. So you see that. No pains in their death. Their body is fat. They don't have trouble as other men, like me, implication, the psalmist, right? Um, nor are they plagued like mankind. I'm reminded of James at the end of his letter in chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. It's similar, right? He sees injustice here. It says, Look, the pay of those you held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you, and cries of the reapers who have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. The same thing, that implication of those that take advantage of people and and, uh, provide that injustice. Verse 6, therefore their pride is their necklace. Their pride, it's the, the best of jewelry. The garment of violence covers them. There's several ways you could... You can look about this, but it's the jewelry. Maybe it's the Gucci bags or whatever the trendy handbag stuff is. Uh, you know, but, but, but also, it's just this countenance of pride is, is what really defines them, right? Pride is their necklace, and everybody sees it. Spurgeon says, They speak loftily, their high heads like tall chimneys vomit black smoke. So, application for us. Maybe you feel like the psalmist today. Um, maybe you're looking about you. Maybe it's uh, 
you know, family members that, that curse God and yet they prosper so much. Maybe it's neighbors, maybe it's co-workers, um, whoever it is, and you're seeing this and you're asking, Lord, why? You look on the wicked and you see that they're healthy and they don't have all the bodily ailments that you do and you eat healthier and yet they're leaner and all of this. And, and you look and some of them are so financially successful that and you're just struggling to get by. You look and you see they're gaining all the popularity and all the types of friends where you're over here losing friends for the sake of the Gospel. You can see how so many are afflicted with mental health issues, even some of our loved ones. How suicides are up drastically since these lockdowns. And maybe, maybe some of you children, there's only a few here, Maybe your friends got the better gifts at Christmas and you're tempted to be envious. Or maybe they're rude and proud and arrogant towards you at school and, and yet you're trying to guard your tongue and live a righteous life. It can be discouraging. Verses 8 and 9, uh, he sums up really what they do with their mouths. Look at that. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Just think about that. The corrupt character of their mouth. They oppose God Himself. First, they have a polluted mouth. They speak wickedly. They continually curse and tell filthy stories. Secondly, a proud mouth. They speak on high. They speak with arrogance. Third, a profane mouth. They speak against the very character and attributes of God. By their words, they deny Him. And lastly, their perpetually mocking mouth that they continually um, mock. Their tongue parades through the earth. And think of the evil voices that parade through the earth in our day. And we could maybe point out to a couple... Um, uh, rap stars or something like that, or maybe some of Hollywood's elite, maybe some elite politicians. What are the things that they're saying? And there's a narrative that's sort of largely being put out there by which the church of Christ and by Christians are being slandered, they're being silenced, and there's a narrative that's being pressed. Some of the things I mentioned in my introduction. In verse 10, therefore his people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? This persecution that comes and, and this questioning. Uh, look at that. They, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? It's doubting. Is He really omniscient? You know, maybe the psalmist has fallen into despair and depression at this point. Maybe he truly began to think, is God really hearing what I'm hearing and seeing what I'm seeing? And he struggles. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his great book on depression says this, the whole trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is a sense is this, that we allow our self to talk to us instead of us talking to ourself. Am I trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself 
rather than talking to yourself. And what does he mean? Well, you say, well, I saw a homeless guy talking to himself. That didn't look very spiritual, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is, is reminding yourself of the promises of God, of the very truths of Scripture. You're speaking to, you're not allowing your, you know, the devil to, to plant these seeds of doubt and begin to entertain those, and even your own deceitful heart. But you're speaking the very promises of God and the truths of God to yourself. The wicked profane God and His people. These folks want to think God does not see their wicked deeds and, and they claim that God does not know. Isn't that what it says here? It says um, in verse 11, And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are wicked and they always, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. So, his conclusion is that these wicked are just prospering like crazy. And really, what we see here is a disoriented perception. But now, verses 13 to 20, we see a divine perspective. Enlightenment comes when our perspectives are corrected by the Word of God. Let's read 13 to 17. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, and behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end." So it appears God is not good to his children. There's intensified doubt. Really what he's doing is this is a a spiritual lament that I've been trying to live a godly life and doing the right things all for naught. Right? That's what he says. Surely in vain I've kept my heart poor, pure, and, and I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He, he's concluding that, that the pursuit, seeing the prosperity of the wicked, but then his own pursuit of godliness and seeking to honor God is, just has been in vain. And so he says it was troublesome. This is, this is, these are words of agony, right? And really wrestling with these things. It was troublesome. But the first step to enlightenment or corrected perception, you might put it, is not mental, but moral. What do I mean by that? It's turning from self-interest and self-pity, right? As we saw in verse 3, it's, I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 13, surely in vain I kept my heart pure. Um, it's turning from those things and remembering who God is. But... What happens? Verse 17. This is really a key verse here. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the place of worship. Until I came to the place where where all things are right and where God's presence really is there. Until I came into the sanctuary and heard the prayers of the righteous being lifted up. Heard the Word of God being proclaimed in truth. When, when I came in and I, I, I collectively with the very people of God had fellowship and, and healthy body life, these kinds of things, he hears the praises of God's people. He hears the prayers lifted up. 
But perhaps he, he saw the, the priest offering the lamb on the altar there and was reminded of a substitute for his sin. He was renewed and everything that was blurry, everything that was confused in the, 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 the empty pursuit of seeking to live a godly life and seeing the wicked now became clear. The cloudiness was moved aside as it were. He now began to see what reality is. Now it's possible also that the psalmist, and we know from our own spiritual lives, all of us, that if we're out of fellowship for a couple of weeks, or even worse, a couple of months, that our perception can become clouded. It can become distorted, right? And it could be that the psalmist was out of fellowship for a short time and, and began to leave off on the means of grace and Maybe he wasn't reading the scrolls of the Bible and skipping church half the time or whatever. And, and perception can become clouded. Perhaps the psalmist had resorted, as many Christians, professing Christians in our day, resorted to a YouTube Christianity. I got my, my three superhero preachers that I like to watch. I can watch in my pajamas in my own home. You know, I don't have to dress up and drive to church and all of that. And they think... They're getting what they need. They can still have a clouded because we need each other. We need fellowship. We need the healthy body life to encourage one another and to love and good deeds. His perspective changed when he came into the house of God because what does it say here? Then I perceived their end. Now I got it. This is the place of righteousness. This is the place where God's pleasure dwells in the, in the house of God and, and, and for us, of course, in the church. He goes in the house of God and he, everything that was upside down is now set right and he perceives their end. He was caught up into their present lifestyle, but now the clouds are moved away and he perceives their ultimate eternal end you see he perceives he had perceived that their 60 70 80 90 years of prosperity was really the end but now he sees that there is an eternal end even if all of those years are with prosperity well what are the prospects of the wicked verse 18 surely you set them in slippery places you cast them down to destruction how they are destroyed in a moment. How they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. This is strong language. This is their true destiny. This is what their end looks like. He now perceives having a, everything corrected in his perception and everything right side up. Like speaking of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 5, it says, But in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. And so the psalmist sees the danger of the wicked. He now understands in reality they're like bare feet on ice. They're set in slippery places. Have you ever been back east or somewhere where there's ice? And it's that real slick kind of ice. And I mean, you literally just put your foot down and you're about to completely lose your balance. That's the implication here. You set them in slippery places. 
Jonathan Edwards, probably one of his most famous sermons, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, is based on a somewhat obscure text in Deuteronomy 32 that actually reads, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. That was the text that he based that famous sermon on. And just like here, he set them in slippery places. It's not that they set themselves on that ice. Who's doing this? God is. The prosperity of the wicked put them in dangerous places. No matter how far up they get on the political ladder, or how rich they become, how many offshore bank accounts they have, no matter how popular they are, they are in a dangerous position. Apart from repentance, if they meet death in such a condition, oh, how they are destroyed in a moment. How there are sudden terrors. Now, for us believers, when that comes, we don't gloat and delight in that at all because we would never wish anyone to eternal destruction in hell. But rather, rather, we see that the justice of God is, is at work and we can trust in His judgments and what He does. And we can rest in that. We also can rest in the fact that God is going to correct every injustice and make it right in due course. It's not always on our time clock, right? It's rarely on our time clock. Um, But we know and we have that confidence because of the very character of our covenant God. God is the one who destroys them. You, O God, cast them down to destruction Oh, how they are destroyed in a moment. How they become a desolation. Utter destruction and dismay come upon them. And and notice it it comes upon them. What Suddenly, it's when they least expect it. This is when it comes upon them. John Gill, the famous Baptist commentator, two generations before Charles Spurgeon, um, says this, Their destruction is not only sudden, but entire. It is like the breaking of the pieces of a potter's vessel. Just, you know, no hope of putting it back together. A shroud cannot be, it can't be gathered up and reused. Or it's like the casting of a millstone into the sea, which will never rise again. And this is done with terrors, entirely by terrible judgments inflicted upon them from without, and terrors from within, seizing their minds and their consciences for a time of temporal calamities or at death, and certainly at the judgment when the awful sentence will be pronounced upon them. So now we can have the right perspective. We know God's in control. Yeah, we might see all of what's going on around us, but we know God has our back, right? We know He's going to correct everything that appears to be wrong. Job 20 and verse 5, the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. You know, speaking in in terms of eternity, right? That's what it is. One man said, headlong is their fall without warning, without escape, without hope of future restoration. Despite their golden chains and their goodly apparel, death comes upon them suddenly. It's like a dream when one awakes. Look at verse 20. 
like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. A dream when one awakes, their perceived happiness is not real. It's like a dream. They were living in a dream world. It was, it's, it was here today, gone tomorrow. While the people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them and their labor pains come upon preg- as when labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.3. So we saw the disoriented perception, the divine perspective, and now ultimate pleasure. And I structure this 21 to 29 because ultimate pleasure doesn't come without repentance. And what we see here is the psalmist repents and then it leads to that that pleasure. So the contrast of repentance that leads to pleasure. The psalmist had a poor perspective and it negatively affected his life. Read 21 and 22 with me. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. What is that but a confession? An acknowledgement of his sin, his wrong, wrongful thinking. He, he, he's grie- he was grieved and embittered, which leads to bitterness. He, he was foolish. He had a wrong perspective. He acted ignorantly. Now he sees with new eyes, and he makes a full confession of his foolishness. He, he even says, I was like a beast. A beast doesn't perceive things spiritually. It's sensual. And so is the man that envies the wicked. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you guide me and afterwards receive me into glory. What is he doing here? He's recounting the very faithfulness of God, the godly divine protection that he has. God is near. He is powerful to those who walk in his will. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Similar language here. You, you, you've taken hold of my right hand. God is always faithful. He's here to guide us as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Wow. Most of us have that memorized, right? The psalmist was beginning to lean on his own understanding, right? In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. So the psalmist's talk has has gone from uh, uh, self-pity unto praise to God. No longer focusing on himself, but looking to God. Secondly, you can only find your satisfaction in God alone. 25 to 28. Um, Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You see, the wicked have their riches. The wicked have their possessions. The wicked may have their, their, their temporal popularity, um, right? But the psalmist is recounting that I have God. Whom have I of heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I don't need anything else. That's what the psalmist is saying. I'm content We see the Apostle Paul with the same cry in Philippians 3. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish 
so that I may gain Christ. Asaph turns away from the temporal earthly glitter of which captured his attention so much to knowing the one true God where is their real treasure. As a child, he felt that his God was better to him than all the wealth and health and honor and peace in this world. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. The psalmist is coming to the right perspective here. He's, uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And look in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, as it did earlier when I had a distorted perspective, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Satisfied in God alone, acknowledging His own weakness, His own propensity to sin, and perhaps fall even yet again, but God is the strength of His heart. He is the one that will hold Him up. Psalm 16 talks about this portion. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The Lord is the portion. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Verse 27, those who are far from God will perish no matter who it is, whatever personality, whatever sports hero. They will die apart from repentance. They will face everlasting judgment. But in contrast, verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge and that I will tell of all your works. The nearness of the psalmist to his God, the real comparison far from this vantage point you know he, he's now he sees the end of the wicked and their doom so with the new year we want the right perspective right we don't want to get a distorted perspective the wicked only prosper for a season right it's it's temporal apart from their repentance and getting right with god it's it's for a season it doesn't matter if it's Dr. Fauci or Bill Gates, you know, or Joe Biden or certain governors and dictators all over the world. A dreadful end will come to them if they do not repent. Surely you set them, the people that are dictating all of these things, you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. We need to remember God is sovereign, brethren. God is on the throne. He's in control. Outward temporal prosperity can be dangerous. Remember in Proverbs 30, it says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I be in want or need and steal and profane the name of God. In other words, let's be content, right? We don't need the riches. We don't, we don't want to necessarily be without to where you're tempted to steal, but um, outward temporal prosperity can be dangerous. Don't be surprised by things not seeming right in the here and now. Our psalmist learned that, didn't he? But, and then also, when he came into the house of God, 
Then he perceived their end. Then everything was sorted out. What's the simple application for us? We need to be in fellowship and in worship. And when we're going through difficulties in this life, we need to remember that God is near the brokenhearted. We need to remember our identity in Christ. We are children of the King, right? The King of kings. There's royal blood, as it were, flowing through your veins. And then in this year, be about self-examination. The Puritan John Flavel said, we should call our hearts to account every evening and say, oh my heart, where have you been today? Where have your thoughts been wandering? Oh naughty heart, oh vain heart, could you not abide by the fountain of delights? Is there better pleasure with the creature than with your Redeemer God? So to have short accounts with God. And finally, to remember our blessed Savior who suffered the most unjust and the most terrible uh, treatment ever in this world. And he was the sinless one. He was the perfect one. He, he, he lived the perfect life. He'd never done anything wrong. And where you have an, another arrogant political person, Pilate said to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. That was a temporal authority too, wasn't it? His righteousness, his atoning death through all of that. We have life. We have royalty. He makes us our children so that we are truly rich, not the temporal riches of the world. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, right? yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And then we need to be reminded that just as these who are set in slippery places, each of us will stand before God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So make sure that you are right with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You even for the brutal honesty of the psalmist even today and that we can identify with that on different levels. Lord, we pray that You would help us this year to be the most productive year that we have ever had in regards to living for You and Your glory, serving You in the church. Lord, we pray that this would be a year of even mighty revival in our land. We've seen so many departures from the church and those that were fair-weather followers that have not even returned to church. And Lord, would You breathe by Your Spirit once again would you have mercy on our country in particular that has drifted so rapidly in just recent years? Lord, we long to see your churches full, as the hymn writer says, and use us and our feeble efforts as a church towards that end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.